episode 17 of Behold Her, a podcast that showcases the diverse stories of femme gamers and tabletop. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and this episode is all about femmes on tabletop YouTube. What a rarity. You listeners on Twitter helped me track down some amazing femme content creators for this episode, and I can't wait to share them with those of you looking for a little more diversity in your viewing. Sit back and prepare for interviews with Dale Kingsmill and the one and only Ginny D. Then, ready yourself for a heartwarming audio story from the GM witch, Tatiana Vogt. This episode's audio story is brought to you by Vorpal Dice Press, an indie game developer specializing in 5th edition D&D content. One of my favorite series of theirs is the Amaroon's Almanac, which explores various biomes in the Forgotten Realms, and even includes spells with a special new component, environment. Vorpal Dice Press is a community-first publisher, which means they focus on reinvesting earnings into talented writers, artists, and behind-the-scenes contributors in the tabletop industry. Huge thanks to Steve at Vorpal Dice Press for supporting Behold Her. Give him a follow at Vorpal Dice Press on Twitter. All right, it's story time. Dale Kingsmill is known on YouTube as Monarchs Factory, a play on this Australian content creator's last name. She breaks down famous myths and legends in entertaining and hilarious ways, and in more recent years, delves into all aspects of Dungeons and Dragons, from building monsters to hacking player options, and much more. Dale, I am so excited to have you on Behold Her. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit about you and Tabletop and you and YouTube. But tell me, which came first? Was it Monarchs Factory or your interest in Tabletop? Oh, let me think. They kind of started like properly around the same time, I think, actually. That's that's very bizarre. I, I certainly didn't start making tabletop YouTube videos for several years after I'd started making videos. I, I originally made uh, videos discussing mythology and fairy tales, discussing, retelling them with a little bit of snark probably is more accurate. So yeah, but I definitely had dabbled with tabletop RPGs before making YouTube videos. And then I definitely dabbled with YouTube videos before I properly started getting into into tabletop RPGs. So that's that's interesting. I didn't realize that until you asked. Yeah, a wibbly-wobbly uh, winding path. So let's start with tabletop and or D&D. What is your tabletop origin story? Oh, the origin story. I, ooh. So my brother used to, his, his closest group of friends as he was growing up were uh, a gaming club that would meet on the weekends and they'd play uh, a lot of sort of war gaming, Warhammer type stuff. And also they occasionally would dip into tabletop RPGs and they played a lot of Rogue Trader. And my brother sort of would come home and he'd tell me all these exciting stories. And I didn't really get it, but I knew that there was some, there, you you made up your own character and there were dice that, that decided your fate and if it worked it was good and if it didn't it was funny so so I didn't fully get it but but that sort of started the wheels turning and then um one day my brother was going to he was going to GM his first ever game of Rogue Trader and he he wanted to get a little bit of practice in so he helped me make a character and then he was like okay you've just gotten to this spaceport and you have to go to the library to get your mission and I just didn't understand how it worked at all. I was like, I don't know where the library is. How could I possibly find <laughs> the library? So I'm, I knew that I had control of the character, but I didn't think to just say, 
oh, I go to the library, you know? I, I was like, I, well, I'm going to have to find it. I guess I'll climb this building and look around for, for, the, for the library. And then, then my character got arrested very quickly. And, um, my brother got sick of me very, very quickly and said, all right, it's fine. I'll just, I'll work it out on my own. So that was my first ever experience playing tabletop RPG. And then, you know, I dabbled with, um, with a bit of Iron Kingdoms. A friend ran a little bit of Paranoia. Um, it was it was lots of little bits and pieces until I sort of finally came to Pathfinder and then D&D uh, through that. Do you remember a moment through all of those games when playing RPGs kind of clicked with you and you were like, oh, I love this? Ooh, when did it click? Because I think it was actually in a game of Paranoia. Weirdly, there was there was a particular challenge. I like to be able to say that I played Paranoia and I only died once. Um, I feel like that's a badge of pride. But, you know, the friend who was running it was sort of saying there is a law that you can't enter this door. It's very uh, important that you don't enter this this door, but your mission is on the other side of the door and you know you have to go in. And, you know, Paranoia is famous for being a game where you die based on arbitrary rules. But I remember going, is there a window? I climb in through the window and it worked. And it was just the most <laughs> thrilling moment of like, aha, the world, we can paint the world and what it looks like. And I can interact with all of it. It was, it was a really great moment for me. What brought you round then to deciding to, you already had this YouTube channel and separately your interest in tabletop. What made you decide to combine those two? I'd been making YouTubes, YouTubes. That's what that's what YouTube videos are called. That that it's a YouTube. That's what every, all, the, all the people yeah. on the inside call it, right? Yeah. What What do you do for a job? Oh, I make YouTubes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I'd been making YouTube videos for oh, I want to say three or four years by the time I decided to make a tabletop RPG video, and it was basically I had started watching Critical Role. Uh, because I, I was uh, connected with the Geek and Sundry Vlogs channel. And so I ended up watching Critical Role from the beginning and going, oh, this is it. This is my chance to like convince my friends to play. So I started running the game, pretty much instantly began homebrewing stuff just because that's apparently what my brain is geared to enjoy. And I love it. And so so I had made this simple little system for how I wanted to run overland travel for my group. I say simple. It wasn't that simple. And in fact, I, I don't know if it still works that well. Uh, I might have to redo that <laughs> video. But then I saw a lot of people online on, on Reddit or on Twitter asking questions about, oh, well, how can you make overland travel interesting? And I thought, oh, well, I, I just wrote up some rules about this. And so I thought, I, I don't have a video this week. I may as well make a video about this and share it. And people reacted really, really well. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, after people had been asking comments, uh, asking questions in the comments, I thought, oh, well, I can talk about that. I, I have thoughts on that. And it, it just kind of snowballed. Yeah. What would you say is your style of, of approaching homebrew and a GMing or DMing? Ooh, I think a lot of it starts with the fact that I am, I, I, once, I once said in a video that I'm just opinionated and I think too much. And, and I think that's often what sparks it. I'll be, um, you know, prepping something for my game and I'll just think, ugh, I, I wish that this little bit of the rules had, um, you know, more more to it. Or, you know, I wish this little 
thing about the monster was fleshed out or you know i i want i want slightly different takes on the stuff that's already there and so i can't get it out of my brain until i start tweaking it and messing with it and writing stream of consciousness notes in a notebook <laughs> that that end up turning into mechanics it's it's a mess it's very chaotic but i mean it, it works for me I mean, what I love about your videos is that, well, first, you cover a broad range of different D&D things. It might be, like you mentioned, travel mechanics or reinventing the Kraken based on other lore that exists about it beyond mm. tabletop games. Or there was even a really great video you did about the anxiety that dungeon masters have. Oh, yeah. Are there particular topics that you really love to sink your teeth into? Hmm. I mean... I have a lot of fun taking anything that is a very small part of the game. So I, I feel like one of the, the most sort of obvious examples from my videos is I made a video on Thieves Cant that kind of took off a little bit that people seem to really enjoy. But it was it's that sort of a thing where it's such a small, it's it's a ribbon ability in the game, you know? It's, uh, it's Thieves can. You can talk to other thieves in code, you know? And it's it's such a tiny thing, and it's perfectly fine and functional as it is, but I love to just grab those little bits and extrapolate them into something that it kind of takes on a, a mind of its own and becomes bigger and more of a mini-game and more complex, I guess. Those are the things I maybe have the most fun with, but I also love just taking the monsters and going, all right, but what else could I do with it? Do you have a favorite video you've done? Is it the Thieves Can't one? Oh, I am very partial to the Thieves Can't one. I also, I, I really like my revamped ghosts video. I don't know what it is about that one, but but I, I'm attached to it. I like a lot of the ideas that came up in it, and it really fits into that sort of vague and evocative branding of of sort of here's a general concept and here are a dozen different ideas of how you could maybe make that work mechanically sort of a very loose scaffolding around how to elicit the right emotions i suppose uh, so i i do i really like my ghost video i really like my thieves can't video druidic i think was a fun one yeah i don't know i i, I maybe this sounds arrogant but um i i quite like a lot of the videos i've done oh um, that's great <laughs> Yeah. Creators struggle with that. Yeah, and it's it's really rough. I think part of it is just that because I've been on YouTube for so long now, some of my more embarrassing videos are well behind me. So so the stuff I'm making now, uh, even if it's imperfect, and there are some of the D&D videos specifically that I don't love when I look back at them, but for the most part, the, the majority of them I really enjoy because I think I just have more experience under my belt in ignoring the embarrassment attached with putting yourself online. So you've mentioned vague and evocative, and that's something I've noticed is like a recurring descriptive phrase uh, you've used in a number of your videos, even to the point where you're like, okay, everyone say it with me, uh, <laughs> vague and evocative. Can you uh, expand a little bit on that and that approach? Yeah, well, I... I originally mentioned it, I think, in uh, in a video I did on the 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 Feywild. I forgot what it was called for a second there. I was going to say the Feyacre, which is something from from my setting specifically. But I did a video on the Feywild, and I think I mentioned it being vague and evocative because when you're talking about fairies, you can't really pin it down without taking away what makes them fey, you know. And then maybe a week later, 
definitely no more than a week later, I was watching a live stream that Matt Colville was doing and he, he said something to the effect of, no, that th this is too vague and evocative to be useful for me. And I sort of said, that's Matt, that's exactly <laughs> what I said was good in a video, not four days ago. You know, it was, it was very, how dare you attack my brand like this? And I sort of adopted <laughs> it from there. And then once I'd, once I'd acknowledged it and sort of voiced it, I started realizing it was coming up every time I was plotting out a new video. I was like, oh, well, there it is again. It's vague and it's evocative. So it's, it's really just the heart of starting with emotional response or, or um, affective response in what I want my players to feel in a game and then working backwards to find mechanics that can try to strengthen that and and really prop that up because I, I want it, you know, sometimes you just got to leave it vague and, and evocative. <laughs> yeah. Can you give me some specific examples, maybe from the ghost video, just for mm. folks who, who aren't familiar with your ch channel, just to give them a little taste yeah, so, so with the ghost, I really wanted to draw on the feelings attached to ghosts in modern cultural understanding. So so we often attach ghosts to this idea of unfinished business. That's kind of the thesis statement of a ghost, you know? And so it's it's a little bit more than sort of horror movie, paranormal activity scary. I think that the the broader concept of ghosts is tragic, you know? It's it's very sad. It's got very heightened emotions attached to it. And so I wanted to try and play into that and at the same time play into the sort of tropes we see of how ghosts interact with the world. So I started messing with the mechanics in relation to that in making it I, I sort of, I, I gave the, the concept of a haunted house, right? So in a room that is significant to the ghost, you start playing with mechanics to do with extreme temperatures, play with the idea that the room is getting colder and colder and colder the longer you stay there because the ghost can't communicate with you except through these very ghostly things. You know, they can't tell you what's wrong, but they can tell you something in here is wrong through temperature, through um, temporal displacements or spatial displacements. I, I played with the idea of, players walking into a room and every time they try to leave the room they just walk back into the room because the ghost wants them to know that something is there and it, it sort of plays into this um vague and evocative frustration of the ghost uh in that they can't they can't communicate clearly they they only have these limited methods of communication because it's all about the emotion of the thing Oh, I got chills. You are speaking my language. I particularly <laughs> like gothic horror. So hearing you talk about ghosts, but in like a subtle horror kind of way, mm. a sad, almost romantic horror. Yeah, yeah, that's um, it. I'm because so it is scary. That. It is scary, but it's not jump scare scary. You know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not gruesome scary. It's just this sort of seeping sadness and anger and frustration. Yeah. This kind of eerie mm, feeling. Eerie. That's the word. Eerie. Good pick. So... I'm curious. So folks have certainly watched tons of your videos, but I don't know if everyone's fully aware of what goes into making a video. Could you kind of walk us through the process of, I'm trying to think there's some analogy with sausages that, that, <laughs> yeah. that I can't quite remember right now, yeah, um, but what goes into a video of yours? Yeah. So let me think. I, ju I just finished uh, filming a video yesterday. So let me think what went into this one. So this one was sort of class-based I was looking at the fighter as a class and basically I ended up I started with a conversation with my brother off and it begins with a conversation with someone where 
you know, we, we get to talking about something within the game and I start thinking about it, you know? So, so it was some frustrations with little bits of the fighter class. So then the next step is, and may, this might end up being, oh, this is going to be sacrilege to some people. I pull out my copy of the player's handbook and I go through the, the section that I'm looking at and I write notes um, next to everything that, that sort of stands out to me. So my, yes. you know, visceral yeah. reaction yeah yeah <laughs> um, so my player's handbook is you know it's full of pen highlighting everything everywhere it I mean I don't feel too bad because it's also just a mess I spilled water on it the other day I I've just had to get used to the fact that, <laughs> that my player's handbook is is a bit of a scribble disaster but no I, I write all over it and then I go back through with a notebook and I sort of condense the thoughts that I've had and the the things that I think stand out the most and then rearranging things, sorting out the mechanics that I will need to design if I need to design specific mechanics for something. And then writing out more of a script. It's not really a script. It's sort of a skeleton dot point notes of, of reminders of what I need to talk about next. And then filming, which hopefully should only take, it, it really should only take 20 minutes, but instead it usually takes me, you know, up to an hour. And that's the best part. I love doing the filming. That's great. Then comes the editing, which is a nightmare. I I was not born to edit videos. It's to me. I'm I'm so glad that there are people in the world who enjoy editing, and I love those people because for me, I just I just hate it. It's so it's so boring. I can't do anything else because you have to listen, so you can't listen to music, and you have to look at it. So and you you've got your hands are involved. So you there's you cannot do anything but edit when you are editing. So that usually Feel takes that. me. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that I'm so glad there are people in the world who love it because I need them. But yeah, so so something that should probably only take, you know, about two or three hours to edit usually takes me about a day because I'm bad at it and I'm slow. And then there's all the metadata and things that you have to work out afterwards to upload it. But yeah, it's it's sort of um the D and D videos in particular end up being probably I want to say a four day to a week process once I sort of get the idea in place and I start working through the whole thing. Other videos that I make, like the mythology ones, tend to be a little bit of a faster turnaround just because I've been doing them for so long. So those ones tend to be you know maybe a two day turnaround. Uh, or, or sometimes if I'm very pressed, I can get them done in one day. But no, it is. It's a lot of work just, just sort of setting everything up and working out. It's, it's, I think it's the pre-production and the post-production that really puts the time on. Mm -hmm. So what has it meant to you being a femme person in this tabletop YouTube space? And I'm actually curious. Um, I'll add kind of a follow-up question to that which is, did it change for you? I saw you mention in one video that Matt Colville gave you a shout out and that that really got you a bunch of followers particularly interested in your D&D videos because you do other videos as well. Mm. Did it change? Was it different before and after that? Well, I mean, it's been interesting because, you know, with my background with Geek and Sundry, I've always had a largely male identifying demographic because that's sort of the the group that are very willing to put themselves out there and say, you know, I'm a geek and be very vocal about it. And, and there is kind of a little bit of a snowball effect, I think, in terms of when the majority of the, the very engaged, very visible members of your community are male-leaning or male-identifying, it can kind of 
lead to people who don't identify as male quieting themselves because they don't want to to risk putting themselves you know in in the middle of that particular kind of public eye and and they're lovely they're lovely people um you know i have a really great community i'm, I'm really proud to say that it, it's a, a wonderful inclusive community but um as i went more into D and as i as i got the shout out from colville i feel like that side of my audience has continued to grow and you know femme identifying non-binary identifying people have also been growing in the audience uh, and i'm really really pleased to see them getting more vocal uh, in amongst it all, but it's um, yeah, it's it's tricky when I love the audience that I have, but I also really want to try and be visibly welcoming to uh, you know the the other gender spectrum peeps in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, I so I had a solid audience before I got the shout out from Matt Colville. So I, I was, I was not struggling by any means, but I was uh, hovering around the 25,000 subscriber mark. And then I got a shout out from Matt Colville on maybe my third or fourth D and D video that he accidentally stumbled upon. And it just exploded. I was at 50,000 subscribers within, you know, a couple of months. Um, and that was a, that was a huge deal. And it has been interesting being one of the more visible femme YouTube presences in the D and D community, and I understand that's like you know that's a that's a lot of intersections to to be thinking about. It is YouTube, and it, you know, but it's been nice seeing people sort of say, "Oh, at least there's this person that we can look to," and I, I it just makes me want more of that for people. You know, it makes me want more women more people of color, more, I just, it makes me realize how much we need more of that representation for people. Absolutely. I mean, I watch tabletop YouTube quite a bit and it's always in particular where it comes to talking about Lauren D&D, I felt mm -hmm. like, well, where are all my femmes at? There's a lot of, there's like mini painters and stuff, but my friend reached out and specifically was like, have you checked out Monarch? factory monarchs factory and i was ecstatic to see that there was representation and then uh that inspired this whole episode of my podcast uh and i posted on twitter and i'm actually really excited that there are more femme youtubers in tabletop that i was aware of that i'm able to actually feature in the episode that was exciting that was amazing, uh, for me. amazing seeing people come out and say oh look look at this person look at this person look at this person it was it was really wonderful to see do you feel like there's any added pressure? Like, do you feel like you have to represent because you are so visible? Or do you try not to think about it? I do think there is a little bit of that. I think the thing that I notice the most is having to really be ready to defend myself. Um, you know, when, when people... I don't know. I, I feel like I occasionally have to make videos that make it really obvious that... I'm smart, that, that I do know what I'm talking about, that I put in the work, I put in research to what I'm talking about, because there's kind of this, this bizarre assumption. I, it might, it's not necessarily gendered, but, uh, you know, it could be because I'm young or, but I do wonder if it's a little bit gendered when, you know, I'll be talking about something and people will question it constantly, or they'll, they'll assume that I forgot something that I didn't include rather than assuming that that was a choice. 
those sorts of things are always interesting. And particularly, and I did a video, oh, this is actually, this is a video that I was very proud of that I should have mentioned earlier. I did a video uh, creating pantheons of gods when world building, um, which was a, a, a really fun one for me because I have a background in sort of uh, classical mythology. But there was a lot of stuff in the comments of that video. I made a throwaway comment about cleric domains and saying that the uh, the light domain is an odd one to me as someone who sort of studies mythology because that's that's not really a thing in in mythology when it comes to gods and there were a lot of comments saying um what about apollo what about this person and i think i said something about um nature as well because it's it's not so much gods of nature it's gods of the wilderness versus okay. gods of harvest and things and people sort of said yes there are gods of nature what about what about ceres what about demeter and i <laughs> It was so bizarre to me. I'm like, you just saw me quoting directly from primary sources from from Greek mythology, and you think that I forgot about Demeter and Apollo rather than just not believing that they count as those things? It was just, it was such an odd thing, and I do wonder whether that's gendered sometimes. I think that's the biggest thing that sticks in my brain. Yeah, that's wild to me that you get comments like that because having now watched so many of your videos, every single one, it feels like you have a real depth of knowledge. Like you've done your research for that video. Yeah. I think part of that is oh, not bad. wanting to get those, <laughs> not wanting to get those comments. It's, it's, uh -huh. you know, I, I just hate being misunderstood. You know, if someone disagrees with me, that's fine. But I need to, I need to know that they understand what I was trying to say mm -hmm. first. Um, so I think that does translate itself into wanting to do a lot of research ahead of time and sort of prove in the video that I've done my working. It definitely feels like some of those comments, all of those comments have to do with that individual commenter, because mm -hmm. that is your knowledge of what you're talking about is clear as day to me. And I mean, I um, certainly, I, I certainly, I, I don't want to make it seem like I get all negative comments. No, I get a lot of uh, really positive comments as well. And, and a lot of people who really engage with that sort of academic level. So, so there is a lot of good stuff there as well. So I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. Yeah. Um, my friend who reached out and alerted me to your YouTube channel Thank mentioned you that you also have a Dungeon Masters Guild credit. Uh, you are listed as one of the creators for Heroes and Villains of Theros. Yeah, I did that with Jeremy Malul. It was, um, I, I met him actually uh, during D&D Live in 2019. Jeremy was talking to me about whether I was going to publish anything for the DMs Guild. And I was, I, I was unsure. I didn't know how to go about it. And then this year he sort of said, well, Theros is coming out do you want to work on something with me? And that was just the perfect opportunity because he ha he actually has a background in publishing things for the guild. So he could handle all the stuff that was too daunting for me. And we, we sort of worked on this Greek myth inspired setting. And I, and I love the MTG setting for Theros as well. So uh, it was just, it was a dream project for me. What was that like? Kind of, it's, you're talking about the same sort of area of expertise, but creating written content for people to run and publishing it is a different, a totally, yeah. different, totally different area. Absolutely. It was, it was really tricky in a lot of ways. So I sort of started with writing out lists of the every, every, because we wanted to make a subclass for every class or every player's handbook class. So I sort of went through and I started 
flagging any stories that reminded me of those classes. So, you know, Bard, I felt like we had to do Orpheus if we were going to do a Bard. We had to tap into that. We couldn't ignore the presence of this, mm. this famous musician from Greek myth. So I started playing with the idea of tragedy and working working with that. And then when it came to paladins, paladins was a really tricky one because they're, they're so medieval in design they're very sort of arthurian almost it's it's sort of almost a post-christian idea when it comes to the mythology that includes characters who are paladin like or at least in the west and so then looking at this classical western mythology that that is sort of predating that where all the heroes are just awful they're awful awful people none of them are good except maybe perseus and even then you've got the whole medusa like it's a whole it's everything's very murky mm-hmm. so trying to work out how to make a character that has this sort of sacred oath but make it fit the classical setting was it was it was such a fun challenge you know, it was it was really difficult to do, but it, it was the perfect kind of a puzzle for my brain to start working out because I had all the pieces just because I have that background with mythology and I, I sort of, I have this interest in D&D. It all just came together really nicely. And then being able to bounce off Jeremy, of course, was, was wonderful. Do you have a favorite subclass that y'all put together? <gasps> oh, a favorite child? I won't tell them. Yeah, <laughs> you can't, you can't tell them. I really love Jeremy's sorcerer that he did. He, um... He, he made this really cool, it kind of reminds me of um, when you get to the late epics, so the Iliad and the Aeneid, um, you get these heroes who are really drawing on their ancestry. So it's, you know, I am so-and-so, I'm the grandson of Heracles, who is the son of Zeus. You know, it's, it's this sort of lineage that it comes from a god but it's not directly a demigod it's it's a character who's you know their bloodline have been heroes for a long time so he he designed this sorcerer that kind of draws on the memories of the heroes that they are descended from that was very very cool and then of my subclasses maybe the rogue it was a bit of a dark horse for me because i i thought i was gonna you know i was already in love with the concept of the bard that i came up with and i really ended up liking my journey domain cleric but i think my favorite ended up being the tactician rogue which was really i i wanted to design an intelligence forward rogue yeah i don't know sizes up their opponent and then cuts them down if that makes sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well that sounds very cool Gosh, Dale, I feel privileged to have gotten to talk to you. So let's do the thing then. And uh, where can folks find you online if they're listening to this conversation and they're like, well, I've got to know more about this amazing human? Well, uh, my home on the internet is YouTube. You can find me at Monarchs Factory on YouTube. I have lots of videos. I hope that you enjoy them. It's mythology. It's D&D. It's fairy tales. It's all sorts of things. And then I am also far too often uh, on on Twitter.com at Daily Dale. Thank you again so much for making time to chat with me on Behold Her. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have been invited. If you're enjoying this episode of Behold Her, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash behold her. Your contributions help us pay our editors, sponsor audio essays, and support other special projects out of Behold Her Studio. Our next Patreon goal is a biggie, commissioning transcripts so Behold Her can be more accessible. Here are some folks helping us get there. Chris Matoski, Elliot Kay, Q Fortier, Effie Madison, Catherine Cowerbanks, and Rudy Basso. 
thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Jenny D is a full-time professional cosplayer and internet creator who makes some truly unique D&D content. She explores the social aspects of the game, like tips for being a less selfish role player, and harnesses those cosplay skills to create conversational NPC videos, which you can insert into your campaigns. Today, I am here with the incomparable Jenny D. Thank you so much for coming on Behold Her with me. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. So for folks who love D&D or tabletop games, but somehow haven't discovered your YouTube channel yet, can you give us like the elevator pitch version? Sure. So I would not be surprised if people had not discovered me yet because I'm pretty new to, well, I guess two years. Two years feels new to me still. I'm pretty new to things around here. So generally what I do these days is I make videos where I talk about tabletop games and I voice my opinions and also like tips and advice for players, mostly with regards to like narrative and storytelling and role playing because that's where my experience lies. Being pretty new to tabletop games, I don't necessarily feel like I can advise on rules and mechanics, but I've been a writer and I've done text-based role play for my entire life. So that's sort of my wheelhouse. Um, and then lately I've started doing these character builder videos where I play like an NPC, an original character that I've created, and I sort of role play with the viewer and ask questions and then leave space for them to respond. Those have been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying exploring acting and writing in those ways with those videos. I've noticed you're doing a lot of tabletop content that is like really unique takes on how to tackle different subjects. But before we, we're going to dive into all of that. But before we do, I'm wondering, was it D&D and tabletop that came first or did YouTube come first for you? YouTube came first for me. I have been, I've been sort of like trying to scare quotes, make it on YouTube for, for years now mostly with cosplay related stuff. And I'm also a musician. I sing. So I like to write parodies and I like to do covers. So I've been doing like costumed parody and cover videos and cosplay crafting videos for many years. And they just never really took off. Um, I think there's not much of a cosplay population on YouTube, I think, outside That's of like shocking. prop making. I know it is really surprising because it's such a visual medium. Mm -hmm. I don't know why the cosplay community has just never really gotten fully on board with YouTube, I don't think. But tabletop gaming, the minute that I started talking about it, which I mostly just talk about what I'm interested in on my YouTube channel. So when I got into tabletop games, I started talking about it on YouTube and those videos just went crazy. It's like there's so many tabletop people on YouTube. That's fascinating. Oh, so what was your, I guess, your YouTube origin story? Did you just wake up one day and you were like, I want to make it on YouTube? Oh man. So I guess there's there's probably two different ways I could answer that question. So I'm going to tell you them both. The first one is that I started my very, very first YouTube videos. And the reason why I made my YouTube channel, and these videos are long gone, was to do Disney fan dubs, where like you sing along with like a Disney scene and just have your own voice over the animation. Uh, it's a whole community. And those are, those are long since down. I started doing those when I got my first computer with a microphone in like high school. And then, I don't know, I guess my real YouTube origin story would be I was in college and I was in a Tumblr community around Harry Potter and everybody had a Hogwarts house and you could earn points for your house by doing certain things. And one of the things you could do was make a video. And I didn't know what that entailed. I think most people were just doing videos where they were like, hey, give points to Ravenclaw because Ravenclaw's cool or whatever, but I am a really extra person. So I just <laughs> wrote and recorded a parody of Rebecca Black's Friday in my 
dorm room. I don't know if oh my gosh Friday. That's oh yes. <laughs> so I did a I did a parody of Friday that I just sort of like filmed on. It, it was like you know one of those little handheld point and shoot digital cameras. It was a whole mess. And that video sort of accidentally went, I guess then I would have called it viral. Now I don't know that I would call it that. It wasn't like, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't millions of views or anything, but it got like tens of thousands of views just sort of by accident. And I didn't have any That's subscribers pretty wild. at that point. Yeah, it was, it was weird. I had never been exposed to that level of internet attention before, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways it was terrible, but in some ways it was really fun. And then... I don't know. When I did that, people started asking if I was going to do videos for other houses. And I at first was like, no, I'm doing it for Ravenclaw because I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm not going to, why would I write a song for a Slytherin? You know, I just was not into that. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, that could be really fun writing songs for the different houses. So I got some friends together and we ended up forming a YouTube group called Not Literally Productions. And we made videos for a few years that ended not ideally. And I went on to make my own stuff. And that that's sort of like where it all began. Wow. So when did D&D &D come into the fold? I think it was just a little over two years ago when I started listening to the Critical Role podcast at the recommendation of a friend. And before that, my experiences with D&D &D had not been great. I had I had known maybe two different friend groups who played D&D &D and I had tried to play multiple times and it had just not it hadn't been right. Like it was not the right setup. It was always like too last minute and there wasn't enough prep and not everyone was serious enough and the DM was controlling and like, it was just always bad news. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really understand why people liked it. Like when people talked about playing d and I was like, okay. I just sort of saw it as like a, a thing that was like too geeky, even for me. And I was a pretty geeky person. <laughs> I just didn't get it. And then I started listening to Critical Role when a friend recommended it very highly. And I was sort of like, okay, sure. I'm going to listen to people play D&D. Sounds terrible. And then I was trying to sew. And when, when you're sewing, it's like hard to watch TV, but you want something and music is like not enough. So I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts and I had just been through everything. I was out of ideas. And I was like, I guess I'll try that thing that Rin recommended. And I got immediately obsessed with it. Like I got completely hooked. And Critical Role was the first time that I heard people playing D&D &D and was like, oh, I understand why people like this. What was it about Critical Role, those games that were special, different for you? I think what excited me about their game is that they were telling a story together. And I had only ever known D&D &D as just sort of like a really, really time consuming and less efficient board game. <laughs> and, and I was not into that. But when I heard these people basically just improvising a character based story together, I was like, oh, I get it. That would be so much fun. And it wasn't long after that that I formed my first D&D &D group. I'm now in two home games. And yeah, I don't know. The rest is history. Now I love it. <laughs> Did you jump into being a player? Did you fall into that trap where when you're starting a D&D &D group, you become the dungeon master? Thankfully, I had a friend who I knew had done some DMing in the past. And I brought it up to him just to be like, hey, what if we started a group. Would you be into that? And thankfully, everybody that I initially approached about it was like really into it. And we lost one player from that group. But other than that, like the same group that we started two years ago is still together, still playing every That's week. amazing. Yeah. And it's awesome. It is. When I started listening to Critical Role, I was like, okay, it's never going to be that good. Like nothing that I play is ever going to be that good. They are like the, the ideal, the platonic ideal of a D&D &D group. But mm -hmm. 
I don't know. Like, I feel like my group is that good for me. I mean, not like to listen to, but. Uh, well, I mean, especially when you've been playing together for so long. Have you all been playing the same characters? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. For two well, years. I feel like the characters develop a chemistry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For me, I started with a character that I ended up ditching after about, I would say maybe two or three months. I realized that I had written her more like, oh, this would be an interesting protagonist for a book. And less, I just didn't feel like I was in love with her the way that I saw people being in love with their D&D characters. So I was like, you know what? I want to write her off and play a beautiful elf with flowers in her hair. My DM was like, okay. So ever since then, I've been with my beautiful elf with flowers in her hair and I love her deeply. How would you describe your play style? Ooh, geez. I guess if I had to describe it from an external perspective, it would just be, I don't know. I guess I'd be like a chatty jokester. I feel like I'm always trying to make a joke and which I know can be annoying to some people. And I also just talk a lot. And I'm lucky to be in a group with with some people who also talk a lot. So I don't feel like I'm just clogging the airspace. Mm-hmm. I've noticed you've also had a number of videos about DMing. So is that is that your second home group? Or what have been your dungeon mastering experiences? Yeah, so I started off just, I did a few one shots. And I really liked that. I enjoyed that a lot. I ran one that was kind of like a homebrewy Harry Potter thing that was referenced from somebody else's homebrew Harry Potter thing. And I did that for my fiance's 30th birthday. I ran that. He was the chosen one in this, in this role play. <laughs> and that was fun. And then, but you know, had its, had its difficulties. And so the later one shots that I ran, I ran a bunch of different Grant Howitt games. He wrote, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He did Crash Pandas and Honey Oh Geist. gosh, love. Yes. Yeah. He writes those really, really good, easy one page games that are so quick and easy to run. Like you barely need to prep, which is awesome. And so then I was like, I'm experienced. I can run a fifth edition campaign. And I started to run a fifth edition campaign. I jumped all the way in. I like homebrewed the whole world. I was not using a module or anything. And like very quickly realized I was completely out of my depth. And also that I also that I maybe don't love that. Like that's not the part of D&D that I love. So I, well, technically that game is on hold because COVID made it especially hard. We transitioned to a module and it was easier, but playing online is just rough. So I was like, let's just put this on pause and see where we're at when things get back settled down. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a different experience playing virtually. Yeah. um, Than that camaraderie you have at the table. So something I noticed both in terms of how you were talking about D&D and what interested you, and also what I noticed while binging your YouTube videos, (laughs) was that... You approach D&D and choosing your subjects for your videos in a way that's slightly different from most D&D channels I have seen. You have more of a focus on role play, on interpersonal skills at the table, and sort of like on like tabletop etiquette. And I'm wondering, what is it that draws you to these topics? That's a good question. I I feel like I noticed that too, but it sort of surprised me when I started to notice it because I didn't really think about the fact that I was coming at things from a different angle than than the norm, I guess. These were just like the things that I thought there was space to talk about that maybe people weren't talking about as much as I would like. Uh, but I also have noticed over time that I think there is like a new... I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to say that like people who played D&D 10 or 20 or 30 years ago like didn't care about, about etiquette at the table or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I definitely feel like there's a growing group of D&D players who are 
young and progressive and who like really care about D&D as like a safe space to explore ideas, but also to make sure that you're thinking about how the other players at the table are affected by what's going on. I know there's been a lot of conflict in the tabletop space over the last few years around whether or not certain things are appropriate to include in roleplay and whether or not you should check in with your players about, you know, safety tools before you start playing to make sure everything is, everyone's okay with what's going to happen in the game. I think that kind of stuff is becoming talked about a lot more now. And for me, I travel in a lot of spaces online where you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how you can be more hospitable and accessible to marginalized groups in any group, in cosplay, in tabletop gaming, in, you know, the small business world. And I, that's just important to me. So I think it naturally comes out in the way that I talk about things too, is I, I want to say, I've seen people online talking about their D&D groups in ways that make me feel very sad, especially knowing that my own group is so good. Like, my tables, both of the ones that I play at are just like so comfortable. And so I can trust the people at those tables. And I feel like we're all on the same team. And the way some people talk about their groups online, like they're in opposition to their DM or, or their DM is trying to sort of squash their, the things that bring them joy at the table. It's like, ah, oh, it just kills me. I just want to like take everybody's hands and be like, no, it can be so much better right? than this. Sometimes it's like, well, why play? That doesn't sound fun. Yeah. But then for some people, it's like, well, this is the only D and D I get where That's I am. Exactly it. Yeah, I feel so bad because I, I just want to be like, find a different group, but not everybody can find a group that's really hospitable to their play style. Yeah, I feel like you're definitely right that in recent years there's sort of a shift, more of a like a sensitivity or a thoughtfulness in terms of how we approach play and accommodating different play styles. And oh, you can certainly make an argument that there's always been some level of diversity in the hobby. Women have yeah. been involved uh, since the start. I think it's fair to say it's certainly becoming more inclusive, the hobby, especially as groups like since Critical Role started and people could see, well, there are these women who really know how to play the game and are having a great time and more women become involved and more diverse shows show up and people can see the game is for them. I feel like you get more diverse people with different interests, with different play styles. And then that becomes something that there there is an etiquette to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I also think, I mean, you mentioned there have always been women in the hobby and I think that's completely true. I mean, I've, I've spoken with so many women who have been playing D&D for decades. And I think that what is changing is not that women are playing, but that women feel welcome now at tables, at a lot of tables. And that has not always been true. I mean, the stories that I have heard from people who were playing before the sort of D&D &D renaissance, it's just like classic 80s movie, like no girls allowed type stuff a lot of times. And I think we're seeing a lot less of that now. Yeah. Does it mean anything to you in particular being a femme just in the hobby, but also specifically in the YouTube space? I definitely have noticed as, I mean, I, I, I believe that things are progressing a lot based on what I have heard and what I have seen, but I also definitely noticed the effects of sexism on the way that people respond to my videos. I've been called things like a fashion gamer, which I assume was meant to be negative because the person was saying that no DM would want a fashion gamer like me at their table, but I'm choosing to take that as a really cool new title that I might put on a t-shirt. <laughs> 
Put that on your business cards. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Jenny D, fashion gamer. And I was talking about about this with a friend who is a male friend who is starting to make D&D YouTube videos. And one of the things I was talking about with him is just that there are different assumptions at play when people respond to me versus when they respond to him. So if he says something that could be interpreted two different ways, and one of those ways might be incorrect in the mechanics of the game, and one of them might be correct. People will assume that he is talking about the correct one. Whereas with me, a lot of people will assume instead of assuming that they're wrong or that they're misinterpreting me, they'll assume that I just don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I have a, um, a point of view character, Elowin the healer, who is a half elf, and she describes being 90 and describes herself as old, and then also talks about about sleeping, both mm-hmm. in the video. And a couple different people respond to me like informing me that elves don't sleep and that elves are still young at 90. And the fact that there's a half elf that's like, half elf is a canon race in D&D and they do sleep and they are old at 90, like they're past middle age. So for people to see that stuff and instead of thinking, huh, well, maybe she means that she's a half elf or like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. They just assume that I didn't even look up the race of the character that I'm, that I'm playing. And that kind of stuff is like, those are How things do you that deal I deal with that. That seems so frustrating. Oh, it is incredibly frustrating. How I deal with it is poorly. I'm angry all the time. I mean, I wish I could <laughs> like I wish I could set some sort of positive example and be like, "Oh, I try to educate and, you know, I just it's just frustrating. It it is. It sucks a lot. And it does change the things that I that I do. It changes the way I write things. Like That's uh, yeah, please continue. Sorry. I feel like I'm just like monologuing. I did a video where I had Jester cast Duplicity in the video, and I knew that Duplicity can only last one minute. So I made sure that the video that I made ended at one minute. And because I, because I, and this is so silly because it's not like, I mean, what would it matter if people were like, Duplicity's only, I'd be like, whatever. I made a video, you can like it or not. But I like tried to stick to that. And then I remember specifically getting a comment that was like, it's so ironic that this video is one minute and the duplicity is one minute. And I was like, oh, it was on purpose. It's not ironic. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. that reminds me. So I, that's interesting that you bring that up. Cause I also talked to Dale Kingsmill or Monarch Factory and she brought up the same thing where she feels like she needs to front load a bunch of information in her videos yes. so that people, so she proves, I know what I'm talking about before yeah. people start questioning her. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I mean, it's just, it's nonstop and you try to front load and you try to plan for it and you try to like change the way that you write things or talk about things in order to head off those kind of questions. But you're like, it's impossible. You'll never get around every single thing that somebody might bring up as a reason why you're like not good enough or don't know enough about D&D or, or whatever. I think there's just people who are committed to misunderstanding what you say when you're a woman on the internet in a male dominated space. Absolutely. So, okay. So it's difficult to navigate those sort of things yourself, but sometimes it's easier to give other people advice. So if there's another YouTuber who's working to make it on the site um, and they're focused on tabletop content and they are femme, do you have any advice you would give to them? Well, probably the biggest practical advice in terms of dealing with the negativity that comes up is just that you really don't have to read all the comments. I spent so long telling myself I needed to read all the comments. I was like, oh, I need to build community and stuff. But like, you really don't. YouTube comments especially can be such a rough space to navigate. And it's, 
you can read the top comments or you can like read the comments for the first few hours when your diehard followers are commenting and then ignore them in the following two weeks. You're allowed to do that. I think that's something that it took me way too long to learn. And then I will say just in terms of content creation, I just feel like this is a space like you can see that the D&D creators on YouTube are so heavily male, especially white male. And there are a lot of them that are great. They're great content creators. But mm -hmm. if you're breaking into this space as someone who is not a white male, I just want to encourage people to just, do, to just do it and talk about the things that you care about and that are important to you. Because me making these videos talking about tabletop etiquette and then getting tens of thousands of views on them proves that there are going to be other people out there who are interested in the same facets of gaming that you are. And if you're interested in stuff that is informed by your identity, then there are going to be other people who, who want to hear that. Absolutely. If you're not seeing it, it doesn't mean that no one's interested in it. It means yes. no one's doing it and you could be the one. Exactly. Um, so speaking of that, uh, we talked a little bit about how you talk about tabletop etiquette, interpersonal skills. What else inspires your videos? Oh, well, lately with all the character stuff, I'm just like getting in touch again with this part of me that has always really, really loved character acting and just sort of goofing around and doing silly accents and just being weird. I think that I've always really loved that and I've always just been like a ham, you know? My parents would have described me when I was younger as a ham. And I really set that aside, I think, in my high school and college years. I just like desperately wanted to be the like, pretty ingenue lead character in things. And I spent a long time trying to mold myself into that, even though every time I was involved in theater, I would get cast in like, you know, sidekick roles or villain roles or whatever, which I now realize are the most fun roles mm -hmm. often. But I think I rejected it for a long time because I just felt insecure. And I felt like that meant something about me as a person. And so lately I've been really inspired by and enjoying the opportunity to just like, play weird, silly, goofy characters that play to my strengths, I think. Like Edith, the, the character in my latest point of view video, she's a matchmaker and I gave her like a like a thick New York accent. And I just oh, had so much classic. fun doing it. <laughs> yeah. That's really fun. And those videos are so great. If someone just wants to even just practice their role play themselves to have that resource. And I would have never thought to create a video like that. That's very unique. I mean, what's funny is I don't even know that I meant to create a video like that. Like when I did my first q and I, I didn't even want to leave space between the things. I mostly just wanted a fun way to present a list of questions. And then the more that I hear from people about how they're using them, I, I don't know, it makes me very excited that there are all these uses for these videos that I didn't even think of. People are saying they are trying to work the scene of the POV into their game. Like they might take oh. the villain interview that I did and they might drop that villain into their game as an NPC and actually have her interview the party as the beginning of a quest. I just think that's so cool. That's a really cool like multimedia way to make your game more immersive. Yeah. Especially as we talked about virtual games being really tough because they're just such a different feel from in-person games. Here's You're creating like another tool for folks to kind of amp up their virtual play as well. I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to, and I'm, I'm extremely happy that it's helping people in ways that I didn't predict because all that I want to do is help other people's games be more fun. So that's like my primary goal. Absolutely. So can you walk us through what like the process of making a video is? Sure. Yeah. So usually for me, I start with a concept that I, that usually pops into my head while I'm trying to fall asleep. 
So um, I have like a notes app in my phone with all of these miscellaneous little collections of words that may or may not mean something. And then I start shaping that into a script. And usually for most of my videos, I write out a complete script, like word for word, exactly what I'm going to say. I occasionally improvise things like my Adventurer's Kitchen series that I just started with my fiance. We're like cooking in the kitchen. So we're just improvising all that stuff. But for most of my videos, I have a complete script. And then I review it multiple times. I read it out loud. I make sure that everything sounds right. I check the timings on it and stuff. I check for mistakes that people on the internet will get upset with me about. And then once I'm totally sure about it, I usually just, I set up in my, I have a little basement space that's mine. I have a little studio space. So I just set up everything in the basement. And then I have a teleprompter that I use. And I am always thrilled when people tell me that they did not expect that I was using a teleprompter because I try really hard to not make it look like I'm using a teleprompter. But it helps I have me no get, idea. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It helps me get all of my words out exactly like I mean them to. And it makes the process just so much faster in editing. Because once I'm done filming, I bring it all into Premiere and I, I chop it up and I add effects and titles and all that kind of stuff. And for some videos, that's the easiest part. And then for other videos, it's the hardest part, depending on the video. Like I, I'll do a music video sometimes that will require like green screen and, you know, magic effects and music overlay and like all kinds of stuff that'll take forever. And then sometimes I do videos where I just talk to the camera and the edit takes like three hours and bam, done. Three hours, bam, done. It's still three hours. Uh, gosh, there's so much work that goes into every single one of these. Yeah, they. I would say that the average video probably takes between like eight and 25 hours wow. from start to finish. And of course, there are outliers. <laughs> well, I hope folks who are listening uh, and love your videos feel an extra level of appreciation there. <laughs> So as we kind of wind down this interview, I wanted to check, was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to, to bring up? Uh, anything new in the works or just a uh, final word to folks listening? I guess I'll just say that I am really branching out into some new spaces on my YouTube right now, like the Adventurous Kitchen cooking videos and um, these POV videos that I've really been expanding. And I have... Um, Actually, I have an upcoming video in two weeks that I'm really excited about where I'm going to just basically dress up as and and represent five NPCs that people can just pull for their games, hopefully. Oh, cool. So like a smaller version of the POV videos that are a little less focused on each character, but still give you something to play with. I'm really excited about that, all that stuff. So if you are not following me on YouTube yet, or if you're curious about all this stuff, there's a lot of new stuff coming, and so that would be a good time. This would be a good time to check it out. <laughs> yeah, Dungeon Masters, if you're listening to this interview, that video likely has just released. Um, so definitely go check out Ginny's channel. Ginny, if people want to find your YouTube channel um, or find you elsewhere on the internet, where can they do so? You can basically just look up Ginny D, and that's G-I-N-N-Y, and then D-I, on any platform, and I will probably be there, youtube.com slash Ginny D. I'm usually the only Ginny D in any given space because Ginny is an old lady name and D is not a real last name. So, <laughs> Well, Ginny, thank you again so much for making time to chat with me today. Of course. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Tatiana Vogt, also known as the GM Witch on YouTube, is an illustrator and lover of tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. She strives to add diversity within the tabletop YouTube community while sharing the fun things she's found as a GM and player. Okay, so I'm a mixed black and white female. 
straddling the lines of two very different worlds. My mother is Jamaican and my father is German, but no one thinks my dad is my dad when I stand next to him. His pasty white skin next to my light brown skin has always led to confusion. So it's probably not a surprise that I've always considered myself black. Now, I wasn't a popular kid per se, but I got along with most people that I met. I assume the cultural differences that I navigated regularly between my father's family and my mother's family made me good at adapting. I had weird hobbies and interests, but my loud, bubbly personality and social adapting skills allowed me to somehow fit in. So, when I first heard about Dungeons & Dragons, I was surprised that it was deemed something that only the uncool kids would play. A plot device that was used to show how nerdy a kid was in some random TV show or movie. As far as I could tell, I wasn't uncool, and if I had been given the opportunity, I would have loved to play any game that would allow me to go on fantasy adventures with my friends. I wanted Dungeons and Dragons in my life. Unfortunately, at the time, I believed that it was a thing of the past, something only seen in movies or TV shows and not something that I could actually play. And even if I could, who would I play it with anyway? So I had given up on this fleeting thought of enjoying a game that mimicked, if just a bit, the late night bedtime stories like The Hobbit that my father would read to me as a child. That is until nearly 10 years later. I had just graduated from college and found myself spending some time with a few of my fellow college friends. I don't remember what we were talking about initially, but eventually the conversation shifted gears. Me and my best friend Holly were both pretty new with their group, so the question came out hesitantly and almost shy-like. So, would you like to play Dungeons and Dragons with us? My friend Dylan asked. Wait, what? You mean to tell me that I can play this mysterious game that I had longed for as a child in the real world? That this nerdy fantasy game was in fact real? This was a moment that I had been waiting for and I was ecstatic with a very enthusiastic yes! A new chapter of my life began. My first ever game was a fourth edition homebrew campaign where I played a half-orc fighter who hatched and cared for a baby basilisk named Cronin Cuddles, or Crocro for short. My tough fighter character spent all her free time training and caring for Crocro while knitting tiny sweaters to keep his little baby basilisk body warm. I loved everything about this game, from building a character, watching a collaborative story unfold, spending hours drawing these characters, and then getting to spend quality time with my friends. To put it simply, I was hooked. So hooked, in fact, that I jumped on the opportunity to join yet another game with my coworkers shortly after I had started the first one. The big campaign at work lasted over four years, and during that entire time, I maybe missed, what, two and a half games? I was invested. I found something outside of my first love of art that I truly enjoyed, and I wanted as much of it as I could get. Of course, most of the games I played in outside of work would fall apart after a few months of play for various reasons. The DM moved to a new state, everyone was too busy, or the group just wasn't a good fit. 
but I always had the stability of my work group to fall back on. And it was fun to dip my toes into new games like Pathfinder and Dungeon World every once in a while. Plus, now that I was actively in the tabletop RPG world, I couldn't get enough of it. At this point in time, I was happy to just be a player, watching as the story unfolded and slowly getting more and more comfortable using funny voices and getting into character with my friends. I never imagined I would be good enough to run a game myself, but I was interested in learning about different aspects of the game and tabletop RPGs in general, and I found myself researching props, game aids, and eventually dungeon master tips. The lines between player and game master blurred, and my work DM encouraged my different ideas and interests, going so far as to gift me an extra copy of Tomb of Annihilation that he had, along with our copy of The Rise of Tiamat when we had finally finished the campaign. He knew how I was interested in the behind the scenes, and he was encouraging me to take that leap and DM for myself. Little did he know that simple gesture meant the world to me. At some point, my side games died out and the new work game we had just started was at a lull, overshadowed by the hustle and bustle of our nine to five responsibilities. Because of this, I was craving more Dungeons and Dragons in my life. So when my dad asked me what I wanted to do for my upcoming birthday, I took it as an opportunity to branch out and try something new. I would use him and my two little brothers as the guinea pigs for my first time game mastering. But when it was time to prep for our first adventure, I was terrified and didn't know what to do. What had I gotten myself into? So naturally, I turned to YouTube. I spent hours and hours watching videos from different game masters trying to absorb as much as I could, and I eventually put something together, which led me to successfully run my first game as a dungeon master on my 28th birthday. I had a blast, and so did my family, for the most part. But there was still so much for me to learn, and I had so many plans and ideas that I wanted to explore. So once again, I found myself turning to YouTube for guidance and inspiration, even more eager to immerse myself in this newfound role. I had successfully GM'd a game, something that I had previously thought I could never do. I was a game master, and I wanted to be a good one. I was inspired by podcast icons like the McElroy brothers, listening to them play the Adventure Zone, the Balance Arc, and I ate up everything Matt Coville had to say in his DM advice series on YouTube geared towards inexperienced dungeon masters like myself. I was searching left and right for game aids that I could use to make the process easier and non-Dungeons and Dragons themed tabletop RPGs that could inspire the homebrew that I was slowly building for my family. After watching video after video after video, I slowly began to realize that there wasn't anyone who looked like me in the YouTube tabletop RPG space. And after I realized that, I started to spend more and more time actively seeking out female GMs or black GMs, only to be disappointed in how few actively existed on the platform. Now don't get me wrong, it was never a shock to me that Dungeons & Dragons was a white male-dominated hobby. Out of the many games that I played in over the years, nearly all of my GMs have fit that bill to the T. But I also knew that diversity did exist. After all, I was playing, wasn't I? 
Eventually, I found some amazing ladies like Dale Kingsmill of Monarch's Factory and Dawn of Roll for Initiative, but it was clear that women and people of color in general were few and far in between, and I saw this as a void that needed filling. I decided that I wanted to give YouTube a shot, specifically in the tabletop RPG arena. Now, this wasn't my first experience on the platform. Actually, I had been on YouTube for years at this point originally making beauty videos in the tiny room I rented during college, to eventually launching a separate art channel that would reach over 50,000 subscribers, which I'm still amazed at. And with that being said, I'm sure you can imagine that YouTube was a space I was familiar with. And as nervous as I was about creating a channel in an area that I was still learning about, I knew that my voice was valid and I hoped that my experience in making videos would make up for my inexperience in game mastering. Plus, I figured people could learn from my mistakes and grow with me. So I took the plunge and the GM Witch was born. I focused on sharing cool and useful tabletop RPG things that I found via Kickstarters, indie creators, and drive-through RPG purchases. I wanted to share all the cool things that I was discovering, finding inspirational or useful, and using during my own game prep sessions so that hopefully other game masters could get value out of them as well. And on occasion, I would create videos discussing different topics and ideas around things like railroading in games or different ideas for handling perception checks. I had hoped that including a black female voice in a mostly white male dominated space would allow other people like me to feel welcome in this tabletop RPG world that I loved so much and still love so much. And now I hope that more diverse and underrepresented individuals join the community and share their voices. There is plenty of space. And if I can do it, so can you. If you want to hear more from Tatiana, give her a follow on Twitter at the GM Witch or search the GM Witch, all one word, on YouTube. Thank you to Vorpal Dice Press for sponsoring that audio story. And of course, thank you to Tatiana, Ginny, and Dale for sharing their stories with Behold Her. Remember, if you love hearing these stories from femme gamers, you can help make Behold Her happen by supporting patreon.com slash beholdher. Next up this January, we have something special coming to the Behold Her podcast feed. The Haunting of Good Society is an actual play that combines Good Society, a Jane Austen RPG, with subtle horror and ghosts galore. This four-episode miniseries follows the reunion, or perhaps ruin, of the Cluett sisters, former child detectives who parted ways over a dark secret. The Haunting of Good Society stars yours truly, that's me, and former Beholder guests T.K. Johnson and Friday Elliott, and the incomparable Eugenio Vargas. The series is brought to you by Story Brewers role-playing, Friday Afternoon Tea, my own Behold Her studio, and all of you who supported our Ko-Fi goal. If you can't wait for the podcast edits, it's streaming on twitch.tv slash Lisa Penrose every Friday, 5 p.m. Pacific. And those of you supporting the Patreon will get a special treat, our session zero brimming with plots and plans. So what are you waiting for? Go check out the Patreon. See you there. Thank <laughs> you.